Again, I told you as, as I started this journey through this chronology that I didn't have any desire to uh, simply teach what had been taught before. These passages are extremely familiar, and so I was committed to setting myself to where entered these topics with kind of a determination to settle between those things that had kind of been taught and the things new that were held within these scriptures. So I continue to, to press to do that. I don't want to bore you to death with stuff that you have already heard taught many, many times. So John chapter 12, we're getting close to the cross, getting close to Jesus entering into the city as this occurs. So John 12, beginning with verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. So among those who came, these are not Grecians, these are Greeks who had heard and in some measure been converted and were among those who came up to worship at, at, this, at this particular feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was at Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And the first thing that you kind of recognize in this passage is that Jesus doesn't respond to them. We know that the answer is somehow connected, but Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll see them, I won't see them. There's no direct answer to their request, so it's a little bit odd. And Jesus answering them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. I want to stop there for just a second. There's such an odd moment here. I'm going to tell you, I, I know it's odd, but I don't know the reason that it's odd. I know how strange it is, but I can't explain all that I would like to be able to explain. This is just something that, that God showed me this afternoon. It begins here by saying that there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. And they had one request, and they said, Sir, we, have, we would like to see Jesus. And when I read that, I had this strange connection, like I did on Sunday morning. I said, you know, when this came, you're kind of standing alone, and all of a sudden God creates this connection to another thought, and something new is born out of it. There was another time when men came and said, we want to see Jesus. When was that? They came seeking. They came from the east saying, we want to see Jesus. And at that moment, there was a, a reality because they began to follow. They had to have begun to follow before Jesus was born. Or it seems reasonable that they did. They were following because we don't know exactly how, how Jesus was when they actually arrived. He could have been two years old. But they came seeking, wanting to see Jesus. And at that moment came this reality of his birth, the reality of God incarnate. It seems strange here that there's no conversation in this, that there's no response to this request that these men make. And it seems kind of odd because it's like Jesus was sitting somewhere waiting and almost based on a sign. And when the men who were Greek came, it's like Jesus says, now's the time. It's almost like as those others came announcing his birth, these came announcing his death. Again, it seems odd, and, and I can't really explain what God's trying to connect. 
can't make this connection that seems to be there. But I know that it's odd enough that they came saying, we want to see Jesus. And immediately when he, when he hears that, he says, the hour has come. And he wasn't answering a question. They didn't ask him about your death, about your burial, about your resurrection. They didn't ask him any of that way. They just wanted to see Jesus. And they asked the question. The question gets brought to him. And he says, like there was almost a trigger in it. There was almost a revelation in it that Jesus would then say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Again, I don't want to belabor a point, but we have been taught that the salvation of the Spirit is justification, the salvation of the soul is sanctification, and the salvation of the body is glorification. So it's kind of in this announcement, when we hear that it's time for Jesus to be glorified, then we do begin to get the onset of what he's fixing to talk about because we know that he's fixing to talk about this moment of death, this moment when something unique was about to be told, when something was about to be revealed, and it had to do with him being glorified. And we look back at all the things that Jesus has happened at his hands, the word that he's spoken, the things that have occurred, and you realize that this has all been for the glory of his Father. And in this moment, this unique moment, he's to be glorified. And again, in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth great fruit. So he's telling us, my death is going to usher in great glory. For those who get stuck at the cross, as we have been taught well, For those who get stuck at the cross, we have to wrestle with this because Jesus is saying this moment when I, as this being described by this seed of corn, has to die, using this very natural agricultural term, this picture, that once that seed is planted, it dies so that the great production can come. And he's saying, if I die, the great glory will come. And we glorify the planting of the seed, the death, but we so struggle with the reality that we're supposed to be the glory of what came to life out of that seed. We minimize the reality of Jesus saying, this moment is going to usher in something that has no boundary, that has no limit, that is, is designed to be a display of the fact that I died, that this is now coming to grow. It should change our expectations of the reality of our Christian lives. I share this, and I share it with earnest encouragement, that we keep settling for the smallest version of the life that God set before us. And you realize, if, if I were to make a list, just a simple list, and say, in, my, in this 24-hour period that I'm going to live from midnight to midnight, if I wrote down those things that I think, if I just didn't even time, put time, any time praying about it, and just wrote, What in this 24-hour period is going to be significant to God? I can make a pretty good list pretty quick that we love one another. That would go on this side. That we set our hearts before him, that we listen. That we're kind to one another. That we encourage one another. That we share truth with one another. And we we start talking about these things that that clearly God would hold about what's significant in this 24-hour day. That we... Listen and obey and see the release of the things supernatural that he has planned for this 24-hour period. 
And we look at it and we, we could write it. And then we could step back on the other side and say, and, but this is what I did in this 24-hour period. I wonder how similar the list would be. It's because we, it seems like we get it mentally. We attach to this truth, but we keep living the smallest version of the Christian life and find ourselves just kind of constantly busy. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about this, the project out front. I said, God's not doing a building. He's building a church. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, and I just used this example. It was, there were several of us working that day. I don't get to work beside Kyle that lives with Troy and Monique. I don't get that time. But I got that time. I don't get to work with Chad and his son and, and, and Zach. But I got to work with them. That's the pleasure. It's just being able to, in the busyness of the moment, to recognize I'm standing side by side with some of the best people in the world who may not ever teach a Sunday school class, who may not ever preach, but will grab that jackhammer. We, we worked so hard that day, we made Barry sick. He had to go home. He came sick. We didn't, we didn't actually do it. He just came sick. What a joy to be able to do it. What a joy, even in those simple things, to let the glory of God just come and you know, live in the routineness and thank him and bless, be blessed by it. I'm not talking about living in greatness necessarily that says I get to do big things. He said, in all the little things I do, whether I'm driving or talking on the phone or whatever it happens to be, to be able to talk with the energy, with the passion, with the love, with the kindness that the Holy Spirit creates so naturally. And then I, every now and then when something works, it's like, man, th- thank you, Lord. It's just, thank you. Jesus said, talking of himself, if you're not willing to die, you're going to stand alone. But if I die, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it. Unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. These are such simple statements. There's not confusion. There's not a lot of lack or need of explanation in these terms. If any man serve me, if any man has that heart to do that, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. I had someone tell me at the beginning of this week just the excitement in his life because of what the Holy Spirit was doing. And he said, but I, I, kept, I keep telling him, I'll go anywhere, I'll go anywhere. And I said, you do realize that he's not asking you to geographically go somewhere. That's not his request. He said, I want you to go in the Spirit where I take you. I want to take you into understanding. I want to take you into wisdom. I want to take you into those places that you have never been before and you may not ever leave the confines of your pickup as you drive down the highway. I want to take you to those places. He says, well, I do understand it now. But, I mean, he was so willing to go. He's like, I'll, I'll go anywhere. He was, he was on fire. I'm willing to go. Simple picture, but God's not going to give you that assignment until you've gone privately into those places in the Spirit. He did with Jesus when he went into the wilderness. He did with David when he, was, when he spent time with the sheep. With Joseph when he spent all that time... Seemingly the purposes of God were gone. Paul, after his conversion, was gone a long time. Each one in every story facing the, the same reality. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Now, again, this is one I want us to just talk about. I preached on this, but it has been a long, long time ago. This is one of those passages that allow us to connect with Jesus. Because we kind of put him in this place at times, where he lives above his soul. 
because of we watch the obedience, we know the words, we hear him, we draw this picture of him. But here's this very open and honest picture that Jesus realizing, Jesus knowing what he was facing, says, I am troubled in my soul. We hear it later in the garden when he asked the Father if this cup can pass from him. There's a reality to Jesus' humanity in this moment as he faces what he knows he's facing. There's something that's going on in him. He says, I'm troubled. My mind is troubled and my heart is troubled. This is one of those that allow us to connect because we know what that is like. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven. This is the third time this happened. There came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Don't tell me that God doesn't speak. Don't tell me that God doesn't speak for my sake. That God has a message and he does it for my sake. He wants me to hear. The same gentleman that I was talking to, I told him, I said, one of the greatest misconceptions of hearing the voice of God is that people say that I don't hear God's not talking to me because they're expecting it to come in an audible voice. So we ask ourselves, why does he not speak in an audible voice to us? If you ask me to give my testimony about the times that I have heard the audible voice of God, I guarantee it's a very short list. It has happened, but it's a very, very short list. So why doesn't God talk to us that way? It would equate almost to a God who left a sticky note on the refrigerator every day saying, Hey, Randy, this is the stuff I would like for you to do for me today. And I'm not saying that God's voice would reduce it to that, but but if that's the way it came, we would move ourselves very quickly to doing exactly what he said, requiring no faith, requiring no internalization of God at all, no indwelling reality, no listening to that which is inside of us because we would constantly be lending our ear to that external voice waiting for the next instruction, waiting for the next piece of information. Why does God then sometimes in our life speak in an audible voice? Because I know for me, he wanted me to know that that audible voice is real. It's what woke me up. It's what woke me up to the reality that God speaks. I couldn't deny it after that. There was no way to say that God doesn't speak after that when I have heard his audible voice. It was the audible voice that woke them up. I don't know all of the purposes that Jesus said that he said this for your sake, but I guarantee you for the crowd that was around him, especially the disciples who needed to hear this voice, who heard it somewhat at the Mount of Transfiguration, but didn't hear it at his birth, I can assure you there were some disciples who needed to hear this voice of God, this Father of God in an audible way, speak and say these things to be able to, to share. When God says... I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And they thought it was thunder, and some thought it was an angel. Verse 21, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. There's real gravity in that statement. I read a little bit you know, about this passage and realized that there's a great deal of confusion about it, and I'm probably not going to do 
a good job of clearing that up. But when he says, now is the judgment of this world, there's many things, again, we have been taught uniquely and well on this topic because we have such a tendency to look at God as the judge over us. But again, what does a judge in a courtroom need to do? Whatever process is used within that courtroom, the judge is responsible for determining a, a guilt or innocence. Well, when I can read in the scripture, for all have sinned, guess what? The verdict is in. I'm guilty. He also has the responsibility, or she has the responsibility to assign the sentence, to make sure that sentencing is done. Guess what? The wage of that sin is death. The sentence has already been handed down. I don't need God to judge me. It's been done. I'm guilty. Jesus came to deal with that. So when you're talking about this moment, when we're coming into what we know about this moment, and he makes that statement, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. He is saying in this moment, when I say it's finished in a few days, when I say it's finished, his fate is sealed. His fate is determined. Because I'm going to create the mechanism by which this world can be free. This world, will, it will break his hold. It will, it will break his death. It will break everything that he, that he has. Because in this moment, we see it as we read not you know, several months ago when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and it says in that picture, he is snorting and stomping as if he were a horse racing into battle because he knows he is fixing to do battle with death itself, not just in Lazarus, but in his crucifixion. In that moment, death is going to be overcome. The grave is going to lose its sting. Death is going to lose its power and he is going to do something Because this reality of what Satan could bring is fixing to be defeated. And Jesus is announcing it in this moment. That's my understanding of this passage. It's not that this world is going to be judged. That has already been determined. John 3.16 was several chapters ago. God loved the world. And by his son, this would come. And Jesus is making this announcement at this point. And then he says, and... And I, if I be lifted up, we know what he's talking about from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not whether he goes. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be children of the light. I don't think that's confusing. I had lunch with someone today, and they said it's so aggravating to listen to different people, to to try to understand and how to interpret the Bible. And I said, that's that's a key. You've got to get rid of that word. We're not here to interpret the Bible. But that's what church and Bible study has been. It's become about my opinion about what this Bible says, and I have no right to an opinion. I have no right to interpret this whatsoever. I have a responsibility to share what was revealed. I don't need to defend this Bible because of the minute that I do, then I'm going to have to start creating boundaries that I have created. This Bible will defend itself. I don't need to defend God. He's quite capable of telling his own story and defending himself within himself. I don't need to defend Jesus. I don't need to defend the Holy Spirit. They're very capable 
And the minute that I start trying to defend something that is so massive, I will automatically bring it down into something smaller that I can defend. My defense of it automatically makes me narrow it to something I can understand and try to explain and try to defend. Don't try to defend it. Jesus, very clear. While you have light, while I'm here, while you have this light, believe in the light. Jesus is saying, I have been radiating something for three and a half years. I've been telling a story. You've seen the supernatural reality. You're kind of at that moment, are you going to believe in it or not? I mean, he's coming into these final hours, into these final days. These are serious moments, serious invitations as he's expressing them, saying to anyone who could hear him and to everyone who would read this, for all these now generations, since he actually said these words, you have the light, we have the Spirit, believe in the Spirit. Be children of that light, be children born in the Spirit. I guarantee if we choose that, we'll choose the greatest story that God could ever tell through you and through me. And we will become that army, standing arm in arm, and the gates of hell can't stand against it.